Amen. 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 You may be seated this morning. We're going to continue in John's Gospel, so if you have a Bible, open up to chapter 14. We left off at verse 14 last week, so we'll pick it up at verse 15. We're going to finish the chapter, move into chapter 15 to verse 6. So John chapter 14, we'll begin reading at verse 15. If you need a Bible to study God's Word with us, just raise your hand and Pastor John will slip you a Bible. So John chapter 14. Of course, Jesus has been giving his last teaching to his disciples there in, in that upper room in Jerusalem. And remember that it would be the last time that his disciples, the 11 that are there with him, Judas has left that room to set in motion uh, those events that will lead to Jesus being betrayed. And as they share their meal together, which was a Passover meal, then Judas leaves and it is Jesus that is sharing his heart with them before he is arrested and put on trial and then led to Calvary where he's going to be crucified. So Father, we ask that this morning as we continue through this discourse that you would touch our hearts and some very important truths that are here and words of comfort given to us. And Lord, just as these disciples in this upper room were confused, they were troubled, they were hurting, uh, had a heaviness of heart, Lord, we can come into that, this place with the same kind of, of uh, things that are taking place in our lives. Confusion, trouble, heaviness, and sorrow of heart. And Lord, I pray that as you gave them words of comfort, that these are words we would know that are for us today. So touch our hearts. May there be uh, just clarity. May there be um, just comfort and uh, understanding in the words that, that we're going to read that you give to them um, in that upper room that are for us today. So we thank you that it's recorded for us, for, uh, preserved for all eternity, that as your disciples, we know that you care for us and you love us and you desire to produce fruit in us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, of course, this portion of John's Gospel from chapter 13 through chapter 17, as I've mentioned to you, that it's known as the Upper Room Discourse. And we saw in the previous chapter, that is in chapter 13, that Jesus would arise from supper. He would wash the feet of the disciples, setting an example of how we are to wash one another's feet. In other words, we are to live our lives where we're serving others, to have that humility of heart, having that servant's heart. And then Jesus, after he washed the disciples' feet and he told them that you're to do this to one another, I've done this in an example for you, he would then identify his betrayer, which we know would be Judas Iscariot. He would leave that upper room and it would be at that time after that, that it was uh, told that the one which I, I give my piece of bread to is going to betray me. And so what you must do, Jesus said to him, you do quickly. And so he has left. But even though the other disciples they didn't understand why Judas left. They are not suspecting that he's the one that's going to betray. Jesus, at that time, when the 11 are left there, he really begins to share his heart with them in this last teaching that he gives to them before he leaves them. And in verse 33 of chapter 13, he would say, little children. In other words, he is expressing just um, to them his concern, and it's a term of endearment. Uh, little children, I will be with you a little bit longer, and I'm going to go away. 
So a new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And this is how all will know that you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. So as Jesus is encouraging them, he is talking at this time about leaving them. And you can't come with me. And one of you is going to betray me. And Peter, even though you're trying to be strong and and you're uh, saying that you're going to stand by me, you're going to end up denying me. All of you are going to be made to run away from me um, this night. And they're very confused. They're very troubled in their hearts. And Jesus, as we opened up the chapter, chapter 14 last week, he would say to them, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And so Jesus telling his disciples that they can have comfort, that they don't need to be troubled in their hearts because you believe in me. And because you believe in me, second of all, I go and prepare a place for you. Uh, I'm going to prepare a place that I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. You don't have to be troubled because you can know the way. For I am the way, the truth, and the life, singularly, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus, giving these words of comfort and hope to his disciples who needed so much to to hear these words, and we need to hear them as well. You don't have to be troubled because you believe in me. Second of all, you have the hope of heaven. Thirdly, as we discussed last week, you know the nature of the Father. And then fourthly, we ended in verses 13 and 14 where he is telling them that you don't have to be troubled because you have the privilege of prayer. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And so we discussed last week what that means. You ask according to the nature and character of God that his will is done. So that's where we left off, and Jesus is now going to continue comforting them because fifthly, if you've been taking notes uh, in this chapter here, you don't have to be troubled because I'm going to send you the comforter. Let's begin to look at that at verse 15 of John chapter 14. Jesus saying, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, or that is comforter, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. You don't need to be troubled in your hearts because I am going to send another, the helper, the comforter, of course, speaking of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus uses that word another, it's a word in the original language, in the Greek, it means another of the same kind. Just as Jesus represents God, shows us the nature, the exact nature of God, so does the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit, he is the helper. It also takes on the meaning of an advocate. Parakletus is the word that is used in the Greek. He is the other uh, or another of the same kind of Jesus that will come alongside to help. Jesus said he will be in you. Now as we follow what Jesus has been saying here in this chapter, don't be troubled in your heart because you believe in me. You have the hope of heaven. You know the nature of the Father. You have the privilege of prayer as you're going to do great works in my name. And now as I leave, the Holy Spirit will be there with you and in you to enable you, help you to do the greater work described as we ended last week in verses 12 through 14. 
You see, you and I, we can't do that work without the ministry of the Holy Spirit, verses 15 through 18 that we just read. When the disciples were in a boat there in the Sea of Galilee, it was a comfort to, to know that Jesus was there to calm the storm. If you had leprosy, what a help and what a comfort to have Jesus standing next to you to bring healing to you. If you were hungry and Jesus was there, what a comfort, what a help it was to have Jesus take a few loaves and fish and multiply it. But as we discussed last week, Jesus was limited in the fact that he could only be in one place at one time. So he would say that it's expedient that I go away so that another might come. The comforter, the helper, the person of the Holy Spirit. And notice the personal pronouns. You will know him. He dwells with you and will be in you, verse 17. He will abide with you, verse 16. The Holy Spirit is not some kind of force. Because sometimes when I hear some teach on the Holy Spirit, they'll kind of make it seem like the Holy Spirit is some kind of force, you know, like the force be with you. The Holy Spirit is a person. John chapter 14, verse 16 is one of those verses in the Bible that gives us and shows us the underlying theme of the Trinity. We have mentioned God the Father, God the Son, and now God the Holy Spirit. One God. It's not three gods. There is one God that is taught all throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, but one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now when we get to chapter 16, Jesus will explain more of the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But a couple of things to note here before we move on. Notice that in verse 15, Jesus said that if you love me, Keep my commandments. You see, a believer's love for Christ is revealed in their obeying his commands. We discussed a couple weeks ago that Jesus himself said that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so as we have a heart and a love for Jesus Christ, it's going to show and be evident in our obedience to him. Now, it doesn't mean that we won't ever sin or we won't fail or fall short, but there is a desire. There is a conviction to walk with him. There's a desire to be yielded to the Holy Spirit so I can live that life pleasing to you, Lord. I always wonder about the person who says, well, I'm a believer, but they don't desire to really take heed to the word of God. There's no desire to walk with him. There's no conviction of sin in their lives. They just say, well, I'll live any way that I want to. So here we see that Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Also, the Holy Spirit, also called the Spirit of Truth, the world does not receive because the world does not believe. The world does not know Jesus. The world does not understand the Holy Spirit, but you know him. He dwells in you. The wonderful thing about being a Christian is, is that we have the Holy Spirit to guide us, to teach us, to empower us, to speak to us. It's a very wonderful thing. In the Old Testament, they used to have what was called the Urm and the Thummim. You might remember that mentioned, particularly as, as we went through the books of Moses or as we looked at the life of David. He, he would use the 
Urim and the Thummim at times to direct him. It was just a couple of stones that was in the breastplate of the high priest, and they would ask a question or seek direction, and they would pull it out, and it would give them direction. And the Urim and the Thummim, they're not exactly sure what it was. And a simple explanation is maybe just a couple stones and, and, you know, Lord, should we attack and, you know, pull out a stone? Yes, you should. Or pull out a stone? No, you shouldn't. And sometimes people think, wouldn't that be wonderful, Pastor Jeff, if we could just come to your office and we have to make a decision or we need direction? Should I take this job? And I open my drawer and I pull out a stone. No, you, sh- you shouldn't. Or yes, you should. And you see, that was used in the Old Testament, but of course, now we have the working and the direction and the conviction and the empowering of the Holy Spirit in our lives to teach us, to speak to us, to bring comfort to us. Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And I know that there are times in life, you know, an orphan is one that, that you picture that has a meaning of being alone. But we're not alone. And the Lord desires to direct your life, to empower you to live that life that God wants you to live, to to comfort you, to bring you that conviction when we are sinning, when we have wrong attitudes, when we're not living the way that we're supposed to be living, to be sensitive to the leading of the Lord, to know that we can be comforted that the Holy Spirit is working in my life. So Jesus telling them, you don't have to be troubled because of the helper, the comforter that's going to come. He continues in verse 19, a little while longer in the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. So Jesus uh, may be referring to the day of his resurrection. You will see me and you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. It would be after the resurrection, of course, that the disciples would come to understand more fully what it is that Jesus did, what it was that he was saying to them that they don't fully understand right now. Jesus has been saying, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and elders. I'm going to be put to death, but I'm going to rise again after three days. But I like what he says here in verse 19, because I live, you live also. Isn't that a glorious truth? Death has no more sting upon our lives. And we have this this glorious union with Christ, you and me, as he says, and I and you, and of course the Holy Spirit coming to the believers. In verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest, or that is, reveal myself to him. Judas not Iscariot, verse 22, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And he who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you bear is not, or the word that which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So Jesus continuing to link uh, the believer with him and the Father. And the keeping of his word, our love is manifested in a desire to walk in obedience. And the key word here is love, isn't it? If you love the Lord, that love and that living faith will be evident in you as you're walking with God, being obedient to the Lord. We're going to see in the next chapter, we're going to 
read that Jesus is going to explain that we're going to bear fruit. Now again, it doesn't mean that we won't ever fail or that we won't ever commit sin. But when we do, we have that conviction of the Holy Spirit. And we can confess those sins. And we have an advocate with the Father, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. But John would also write in 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. It is a heart issue, isn't it? It's a heart issue. So the question this morning for all of us is, do we have a heart, do we have a love for Jesus, a desire to walk with him, to be obedient to his word, to continue to grow in his word, so that, Lord, I can learn more about you and learn how it is that you want me to live for you. And again, obedience grows out of a love for Jesus and a love for his word. Jesus uh, says that, we will come and make our home with him. Paul the Apostle in Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 tells us of the mystery of Christ. That is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So God wants to make a home in your heart. He dwells in our hearts as Paul writes in the book of Ephesians. And that word dwell has the, the meaning of make yourself at home. You know, our homes that we want our homes to be a place where there's, there's peace. It's a sanctuary where we're comfortable, isn't it? We come home from work. We come home from school. We come home from being out there in the world all day long. And we like to come home to you know, a place where we can be comfortable. We, we can kick back and be at home where it, it's it, peaceful. That's what we desire in our homes. So our hearts, as Jesus dwells in our hearts, makes himself at home in our hearts. Can he be comfortable in dwelling in your heart? In other words, can he just kick back in your heart, in other words, and, and can he be comfortable there? Is it pleasing for him to be there? Or are there things in our lives that would make him uncomfortable? Things on the walls of our hearts that he can see and does see that would cause him to be very uncomfortable or grieve. And for anyone, Jesus makes it clear that anyone who rebels against his word, it is to rebel against the Father who sent him. Because as he has said previously, that my words are not my own. They are the Father's. Let's continue as in verse 25, Jesus saying, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So Jesus with the disciples in that upper room as he will be leaving very shortly. He's going to be continuing to give them truth. And it will be truth that they're going to take to the whole world by the power of the Holy Spirit. The helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things. And he will bring to you, you know, um, and all things to you, your remembrance. So don't let your hearts be troubled because you believe in me, you have the hope of heaven, you know the nature of the Father, you have the power of prayer, and then fifthly, as we just explained, the helper will be in us and with us, and then finally in this chapter number six, you can write down, we have the peace of Jesus Christ, verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled 
neither let it be afraid. I will give you my peace, Jesus says to these troubled disciples. It is not a peace that the world gives. You see, the people in the world will have a certain peace when they can understand the circumstances around them. I can understand and see about what's going to happen. What is next? What's going to be the end result of, of whatever it is that I'm going through or situation that I am facing? But the peace that God gives, which is a true peace and a lasting peace, a comforting peace, it is a peace that passes understanding the scripture speaks about. It is peace that we have even when we don't understand what is going to happen or I don't see how things are going to exactly work out or what's going to be the end result of what it is that I'm facing. We can still in those times have that peace that passes our own understanding. And that's important to have in life, isn't it? Because there's a lot of things that we face. We don't know what tomorrow holds in a lot of ways or what the new year is going to hold when we enter into a new year. What's going to be the end result of this? Or, or there's a lot of uncertainty. But the Lord will give us a peace that passes understanding. And that's why Paul would write in the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, and we've mentioned this verse uh, over Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving weekend, but be anxious for nothing, and we can get anxious, can't we? When we can't see what is going on, how it's going to end up, if I you know, can't make a plan to, to solve this situation or things aren't working out the way that I think they should, we become anxious. And so the apostle who was in a situation, who was in prison, writing from prison, he would say, be anxious from nothing, but through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God that passes understanding is going to guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So as we go to him, as we give thanks, we have uh, that prayer that we give to him, our supplications with thanksgiving. He desires to give us that peace. As we just say, I trust in you, Lord. I rest in you. I know that your promises are true for me, that you're going to be with me. You're going to guide me and direct me. And it's a peace that only God can give. Listen, the world cannot give it to you. So when you feel anxious or troubled, you go to the Lord with thanksgiving, letting your request be you know, given to him, your supplications. And again, his word declares that he'll give you a peace that passes understanding. Jesus goes on to say in verse 28, You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. If the disciples had been perhaps more mature, and their understanding and love for Jesus, uh, they would, you know, understand what it is that Jesus is about ready to do for them. The atoning work of Jesus and his resurrection that's going to take place. They would have been uh, glad for his departure. They loved him. But they didn't understand what he was about ready to do for them at this time. The glory of going back to the Father after his death for them and for us and his resurrection. But then at the end of verse 28, I want to draw attention to it because it has confused some Christians when they read this. Jesus saying that my Father is greater than I. And there are groups that will come along and, and certain you know, um, you know, cults that will come along. And what they try to do is they will diminish 
what the scriptures teach, that Jesus was fully man and fully God. Just as we've talked about over the last few weeks in this morning, that he's the second person in the Trinity. And they will teach, for example, the Jehovah Witnesses, that Jesus is not the creator of all things, but he is created, and he's just Michael the Archangel. Or the Mormons will come along and say that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer, uh, lesser than the Father. And they will turn to this verse, and they'll try to back up what it is that they are teaching, their false teaching. Jesus is not talking about that he is lesser in essence. The Father and the Son are one in essence and purpose. Jesus has made these claims very, very clear throughout John's Gospel. Jesus said that the Father and I are one back in John chapter 10. And it was the religious leaders that wanted to stone him for blasphemy. They said, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So to say that Jesus is less than the Father in essence, or that he was created rather than the creator of all things, you know, what the Bible clearly teaches, and, and that is that Jesus is the creator, John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1. And to try to take away from Jesus his divinity is clearly unscriptural and wrong. So what does Jesus mean here when he says that, you know, um, that the Father is greater than I? I believe that what he is making reference to is what we find in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of man. He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So I believe that he's talking about how he humbled himself, took the position uh, not only as a man, but a slave, a servant, and was fully submitted to the Father in humility and obedience. But in doing that, it does not make him lesser in essence to the Father. In verse 29, And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do Arise and let us go from here. So Jesus is, is saying that he, he's going to the cross now. The motions have been put in place for him to go to Gethsemane. And then he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be bound up. He's going to be taken back to the city where he's going to stand before the religious leaders. So Judas, you know, being used by Satan. Matter of fact, we saw that Satan has already entered into Judas to do the work of Satan. Now remember this, that Satan is not in control here. He doesn't have a foothold in this. In other words, Satan is not setting in motions for Jesus to go to the cross. Jesus is in control, isn't he? He has said throughout this gospel that for this very purpose I have come, to die for sinful humanity. He has said the hour has now come for me to glorify the Father. In John chapter 10, he would say, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own and I raise it up again. So Jesus is in control. This is the whole reason why Jesus came. It's why we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate the birth of Jesus, but Jesus came so that he might die for you and for me. 
And so now Jesus says, let us arise, let us go from here. It is then in chapters 15 through 17 that are still part of this upper room discourse, but it is uncertain whether these words are spoken in the upper room or on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. To me, it seems like they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane because Jesus says, you know, let us arise, let us leave this place. So making their journey across Jerusalem to the garden as chapter 15, he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. So as they're crossing the city, if you go to Jerusalem today, they will take you to what is called the, the traditional place of the upper room. Now, nobody knows exactly where the upper room was, but it's some distance from where the Garden of Gethsemane would be. And if that's where in that area in Jerusalem where the, the upper room, where they had their Passover meal and we've read in chapters 13 and 14 took place, then it would be quite a distance for them to travel across Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus would have time to give the rest of the discourse. So as he's making his way to the garden, he now makes the seventh I am statement. I am the true vine. And perhaps as they're making their way over to the city, people would have little gardens and, and um, they would have, um, you know, um, a little small vineyard grapes that they were growing. And perhaps he's on his way and he's pointing to that as he sees somebody's garden. And he says, I am the true vine. And these seven statements of I am that, that we've seen going through John's gospel, um, he, again, as he makes this statement, tells us his claims of deity, to be divine. I am the bread of life, chapter 6. I am the light of the world, chapter 8. I am the door, chapter 10. And I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life, chapter 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life that we saw in verse 6 of chapter 14 last week. And now he says in verse 1 of chapter 15, I am the vine. And in those statements, not only is he declaring deity, but you see Jesus becomes to us what it is that we need. He declares the name of God. He becomes our spiritual food. Come eat of me, drink of me. I'm, I'm the bread of life. He's the light by which we see. We don't have to walk in darkness, do we? He's the door to enter into eternal life. He's the good shepherd to feed us and to tend us, to guide us and protect us. He has power over death because he is the resurrection and the life. He's the only way to the Father. He's the truth. And now he says he is the vine and he will say that we are the branches. Now we know that a vine provides life and nourishment to the branches that are connected to it. And Jesus will talk about that in detail as we continue through this chapter. He says in verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit the father is the vine dresser that would be like a gardener that takes care of a garden now a lot of us we like to have our gardens in the spring and in the summertime don't we so a vine dresser is one that takes care of a vineyard and the goal of the vine dresser is you know is to take care of that garden that vineyard to where not only is it producing grapes, producing fruit, but it is producing as much grapes as possible. It's the same idea as those of us who have gardens, who grow tomatoes, who you know, grow vegetables. We want to take care of that garden to where not only, only is it producing 
tomatoes or peppers or whatever it is that we're growing, but as much as possible, right? So that work that our vine dresser spiritually wants to do in our lives is, is what the analogy that Jesus is u- using here. So in these first eight verses of the chapter, Jesus will talk about bearing fruit in our lives and, and then more fruit and then much fruit. And then when we get to verse 16 next time, fruit that should remain. So every branch that is in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and he prunes that branch that bears you know, fruit, that it may bear more fruit. So what is Jesus saying here? When Jesus says that the branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and so some are a little bit troubled by this. What does that mean? That if I'm not bearing enough fruit, you know, in my life, that it will be taken away, uh, that that's it for me, I'll be cast aside. And I want us to understand that Jesus here in verse 2 is talking about as he is the true vine, you know, we are the branches, the Father, he's the gardener, he's the vine dresser, and the branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away, or it might be translated in your margins, lifted up. It's the Greek word arrow, which has the intent also that uh, it is lifted up. And then every branch that bears fruit, he prunes or purges, which can be also translated cleanse. So those of us who are gardeners that grow tomatoes particularly, and I like to grow tomatoes, when that plant begins to grow and and the, the branches become heavy with the fruit, you have to lift it up, don't you? Or the branches, you know, end up on the ground and they become rotten and they become, you know, dirty, full of dirt. And also the branch becoming heavy, it's, it's laying in the mud as you're watering it. That branch is to be lifted up, it's to be cleansed, isn't it, with water. But I also believe that it takes on the idea of pruning, of purging. And that takes place in our life, doesn't it? In other scripture, you know, it talks about being purged, being refined in our lives. That old song that perhaps you might know, the refiner's fire. You know, uh, refine me like silver and gold. And of course, the, the goldsmith, when he's refining gold, heats the gold up and then purges or he scrapes off the impurities that come to the top to make it more pure. So I don't really have any problem with the idea of the Lord coming and pruning us. It's not the idea to throw us away, but the text says to, in verse 2, to produce more fruit. It's like a fruit tree that perhaps you might have in your neighborhood or in your own yard. As long as that branch is there in the trunk of the tree, it's producing fruit. But sometimes there's deadness that's there. Sometimes there's branches. I have a plum tree that produces plums, and I have to go out and prune it so it may produce more fruit. There are things perhaps in our lives that need to be pruned. Of course there is. Those things that are dead. Those things that are non-productive for the kingdom. There's a cleansing that needs to take place. As Jesus says in verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. So Jesus tying in our, our lives, our Christian lives, with a commitment to the word of God. And as we have talked about in chapter 13, when Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples, that we as Christians are to have the Word of God that washes us, 
There's a washing and a cleansing in our hearts as we take into our hearts, not you know, in, just into our minds only, but our hearts as well, as we're taking in the Word of God. So God, the, the, the vine dresser, His desire is to lift you up, to support you, to prune that out of your life that needs to be pruned and to wash you with the Word. And those things are taking place. And as they are, fruit is going to be produced and then more fruit. But the key for us is what Jesus begins to talk about, and that is bearing fruit. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Abide in me. Which means, of course, to be connected to. Cling to me. Stay close to me. And just as the branch is connected to the vine or a branch connected to you know, a fruit tree at the trunk of a tree, it's going to produce fruit. If not, you know, if it's not connected, it won't produce fruit. Some of you, again, have maybe fruit trees. And, and if the branch is not connected to that trunk, it's not going to produce fruit. But if it is, you know, and you've pruned it and it begins to leaf out and and flowers out, you know that it's going to produce fruit. But, you know, the tomato plant, if it branches, breaks, and it's not connected, then it's not going to produce fruit. If the branch of that fruit tree breaks, it's not going to produce fruit. So again, Jesus says, I am the vine, you're the branches. You need to be connected to me. Surrender to me, abide in me. And as you do, you will naturally produce fruit. You see, I don't think any of us, that we go in our backyard to have a fruit tree or a garden that we're growing tomatoes, and you go out there in the summertime, and you hear that tree, that plum tree that I have, I don't hear it straining and struggling to produce fruit, going, striving, or, you know, the tomato plants, just striving and struggling to produce tomatoes. It just naturally, as... The, it's watered and the nutrients are there and, and as you know the branches are lifted up that as the branches are connected there to the vine to the trunk of the tree it's going to naturally produce fruit over time and it's the same with our lives as we abide in the Lord stay connected to Jesus you're going to produce fruit but if not we won't because Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. And I have that underlined in my Bible. Because there are things that I try to do in my own fleshly efforts that I think is going to produce fruit, and it doesn't produce fruit. And I've come to realize that without you, Lord, in every area of my life, in everything that I do in life, that I need to remain with you in abiding in you, and I know that as long as I do that, that fruit is going to be produced. And then in verse 6, as we finish this morning, then we're going to pick it up again next week and continue to talk about abiding in His love and in His Word and in Him. He says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. I believe that Jesus is talking about perhaps someone who doesn't belong to Him. Judas Iscariot. He left the twelve. He may have professed Jesus, but he didn't possess Jesus. There was no abiding in Christ. 
and would then be cast into the fire. Now, others commentators suggest that perhaps what Jesus is referring to is rewards. Why would they say that? Because we are saved by grace, not by works, but all of our works are going to be tried by fire, and that which is like wood, hay, and stubble, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, like a dead branch, will burn up. And all the fruit that we did produce, the fruit that the Lord produced in our lives by the work of the Holy Spirit, they're likened to gold, silver, and precious metal and will be rewarded. But the key for you and for me as we end here this morning, as we go to the communion table, is to abide in Christ. And as we abide in Christ, just stay close to Him. Love Him. Have a desire to know Him more. Yield it to the Lord. And as we stay close to Him, fruit's going to be produced in our lives. Fruit for the kingdom. And so, Father, we thank You. And, and as we begin to get into this concept of bearing fruit, we know that it's a work that You do, a work through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can't do this work in our own energies and own flesh. But, Lord, we also know it's a work that comes as we come to You, believing in You, recognizing that Spiritually, we are dead. And Lord, as you make these statements that I am the bread, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I am the way, the truth, and life, you are the vine. Spiritual life apart from you is impossible. True spiritual life comes by believing in Christ and abiding in him. So I want to pray this morning before we come to the communion table, because the communion table is for the one who believes in Jesus, has entered into this new covenant, and is, as we hold the elements in our hands, it's, it's worshiping, remembering. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, that he allowed his body to be broken and bloodshed for forgiveness of sin. But if by chance, if there's anyone that is here listening to this message, and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is your salvation. There is none other. And it doesn't come by works. It comes by believing. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ that he died for you, a sinner. And he died for your sins. Was put into a grave and he rose again. He conquered sin and death. And now life comes. So if there's anyone here this morning that you've never come to Jesus Christ and called out to him, that we want to give you an opportunity while we have a few minutes this morning to call upon his name. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And it comes by believing in your heart and surrendering your heart to Jesus. Quit going the direction you're going. Repent and turn to Jesus to have your sins forgiven and have the hope of heaven. He's the only one that died for your sins. There's no other sacrifice for sin. And he's the only one that can give you eternal life. And it comes through faith in Jesus. If that means anything to anyone here this morning, will you pray right where you're sitting that I believe today is the day of salvation for me and Jesus, I come to you. I confess that I am a sinner in need of you, the Savior of the world, the way, the truth, and the life. Forgive me of my sins. 
I believe you died on Calvary's cross for my sins. Forgive me and be my personal Lord and Savior. I know that you're alive because I know that you're knocking on the door of my heart and I now open up my heart to you for you to come and dwell in my heart. And to make me a new creation in you, Lord. I believe in you. I surrender my life to you right now. Help me to live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. And if by chance you did pray that prayer, rejoice. For God's word is true. And it's a new beginning for you. And you're a new creature in Christ. And now as we come to the communion table, I pray that as we hold these elements in our hands, it would be just a time of worship and at all, once again, of the incredible atoning work of Jesus and the life that he gives to us through his resurrection. Thank you, Jesus, for this time. Amen. The usher is going to hand out the communion elements. I would ask that you'd hold on to them. We'll partake of them together.